You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Uh, We're going to be back uh, in James chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and go there. Most people who spend any time in the Bible, you mention the book of James, they're going to go to this verse where we're going to start tonight because it seems to be the one that catches the most attention from the book of James. Uh, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. That's kind of all that many know, but that's, uh, but that's pretty well known from the book of James. As we, as we come to that verse, we, we need to just briefly again understand what is before it. First of all, even knowing that we're talking about, uh, about James who's writing at a time when he's dealing with many of the former things, including the fact that those who uh, were of the Pharisees were also, and, and wealthy were considered to be those who were particularly blessed of God that the, ble- the blessing could be recognized because uh, you were wealthy. Well, so much of what Peter's doing here is he's actually dismantling that thought. El- making sure that we know that those who have been of low esteem are actually equally equipped with those who have always been considered privileged. And very often those who are considered privileged, we've studied last week the word that means fickled, or they would pick and choose the portions that they wanted to receive. So when you look at the Pharisees, they were looking at those things that would keep them elevated, but they certainly didn't want to, they didn't want to accept the parts about who Jesus would be and about the coming of the Messiah and, and, and who the Messiah would be. So they were picking and choosing those things that they were believing. Also from last week that we covered uh, on Sunday, just for a few minutes, that back in verse 17, where it says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lots. And that, that in, uh, in Greek, those two words, the, the word gift is two different words in Greek. One meaning the good gift, which is the, the gift in its, itself, in its initial, initial uh, stage, uh, but the perfected gift is when that gift given is extended to somebody else. And that's the way we were intended. That's, that's our life was intended to be the receiver of these things of God, but that after we received them, they were designed to extend to others. So that's kind of brought us to where we are in, uh, in verse 22. As James introduces this thought, again, that is shared and discussed so many times but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, James uses the conjunction, or the Holy Spirit maybe uses the conjunction, but to make a very clarifying and confirming statement that reflects those things he's already mentioned. So when he, when he says, but, he's, he said, I've already said this. This has kind of been where I've been already, but I, but but I, I want us to get this clarity. I want us to understand something. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. He's building on the former truth that a good gift and a perfect gift are distinguished by the nature of a gift received and then extended. 
because I can, to be a, a, a doer of the word means that that which I have received goes somewhere. I didn't just hear it. So you can see he's connecting this to, some, to something in front of him. He says, I'm not, I'm not just somebody who hears truth, but I am a doer of that truth because it's in that doing that that truth gets extended. So he's speaking, he's connecting this to the, to the former things. The extension of, what, of the gifts we received is, is seen and made evident by our actions. You take the action away of our lives. You take the doing away of our lives. How do we then extend that which we received? If we receive kindness from God, we recognize his kindness toward us. How does that kindness get extended if there's no action in my life, if there's no doing in my life? How does the love of God that I received that blessed me in its initial, in its initial way, how does that get extended to somebody else if there is no doing? So he's saying, I need you to understand this clarifying statement that if, if I have blessed you, you've received the good gift, I want that gift perfected in the extension of it and it's extended, it's extended by our doing. He does not allude or attempt to say that the doing is somehow separated from the one who does all things. This is the real error in James because it's often taught as an imperative that we are supposed to be busy, that we are supposed to do. But James doesn't divorce that statement from all that he's already said or all that we know that James has already experienced. James has been present at Pentecost. James was there. James saw the giving of the Holy Spirit. Certainly by being part of that inner circle, he knows that Peter and John went to the temple and, the, and that this, this guy that couldn't walk now that Jesus is gone, but the Spirit's come. He, certainly James knows of what happened after Pentecost. I, I would have a hard time believing that James was writing in an instruction that says, okay, now that you've been saved, I want you to go out and be busy, completely divorcing it from the reality of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. I, I could never tell you, I would never stand here as your pastor and tell you to go out and do as an imperative from God because I would have to completely divorce that from the teaching that I've shared with you now for, for years that he is the one who actually does things through you. So I can't divorce it and I can't put James in the place where he divorced it. He, he walked it, he saw it, he heard it. And for the Holy Spirit to be, the, to be the, the writer of this, and it's not really James's book, it's the Holy Spirit's book that James scribed, James wrote under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit now say, now that you're saved, I want you to go out and get busy? He's saying, now I want you to go out under the realization that you've received a good gift. Well, let's put it in the most simple terms. What is that good gift, the best gift that he gave you and I as believers? What, what gift did he give us at Pentecost? He gave us the Holy Spirit. So how does he want me now to extend that gift of the Holy Spirit to others? They have to see it. This is why I've been just 
you know, even Sunday morning telling us, reminding us. First Corinthians chapter two, when Paul says, I don't want you, you know, I, I didn't come with enticing words of men, men's wisdom, but with demonstrations of spirit and power. And once again, just go back and just reflect on that for just a second. Because many of us have had moments of transformation, moments of healing, moments of recovery. We've experienced those things. And I use Sunday morning, the, 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 the gathering demoniac that was just so possessed. But when, when all that was over, he wants to get in the boat and go with Jesus. But Jesus' words to him was, no, you stay and you tell them of what has happened. Because to this man, this man saw this, this demonstration of power as an event that happened to him. But what do others see? They see that he is the walking, talking demonstration of power. They see a transformed life. They see a man who was, but now is. They see somebody that was so in bondage and now free. He is the great demonstration of spirit. He is the great demonstration of power. That won't be known if, if we don't open our mouth, if we don't do with our hands, if we don't go with our feet, if we don't honor that great commission, making those disciples. Well, once again, that's not us. That's him in me. But I should be the evidence of a trans formed life. I, I, it may not be as recognizable as it was with this man who had been so possessed by so many demons, but our lives today should be the walking, talking demonstrations of spirit and power, because if not, where are they going to see it? That has to be recognized. James has to know this, I mean, based on where he's been, so I can't divorce this statement, as many do, to try to create urgency behind our doing. I could not tell you, nor would I ever encourage you to go out and get busy. But I can encourage you. I can encourage myself, teach myself, show myself how to make myself available each day in prayer, listening by revelation and obedience, hearing the voice of God. I can tell us and help us to, to know that I can make my life available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that I can hear his voice, I can see him working, and so that I can be obedient, so that somebody can see the transforming power of God by looking at me. I don't want to have to go out and tell that story often. I will when God asks me to share that testimony. I'm glad to do it. But what I really want them to do is I want them to see. If anybody's known me very long, I want them to say, when I knew him, he was like this. And now he's like this. I want them to see this transformed reality in all of us. I was lost and now I'm saved. I was blind and now I see. I was lame and now I walk. I was consumed and now I'm, and, and now I'm free. It bound and now I experience liberty. That's, what James is describing, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't simply be a consumer of those things that God has for you. Learn how to extend them by, by obedience. Let them flow through you. When I looked up this word uh, doer, it, the, the, the Greek word 
is, and I cannot, I would never say it correctly, I'm sure, but it's poietes. And it means a maker or one who produces, I'm reading this definition in Strong's, this is what he says, a maker or one who produces, one who performs, and then in that definition it says one who obeys. It creates a very full picture that it's by this obedience that I produce. I abide in the vine, remember? How do I produce anything? Well, I stay attached to the vine because I get separated from the vine. It's going to be real hard to produce. Cut a branch off, throw it on the ground. It's going to be real hard for it to make grapes. But it will, it will produce grapes as a natural result of being attached to the vine. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, and we can't really call it a sprinkler at that point. Yes, yeah, it turns into a, the, the cap on the end of the hose. It becomes the very natural result of who he made us to be. So James doesn't divorce or disconnect doing from obeying. As a matter of fact, the words that he used of being a doer was, was an obedient doer. You've got to obey. It's the spirit that does, and that James, again, knew very well. He was connecting this, and it's not any doubt that he's connecting this to what he heard in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, if you want to go there with me. Because James, very likely having heard Jesus as his brother uh, and a follower, very likely he heard Jesus teaching that we know as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. I'll begin reading with verse 21 because this is, you can tell by what he's saying, it's coming from, from this understanding. So verse 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Powerful words. Mm -hmm. That's right. Try it without the Holy Spirit. I have a good friend I was visiting with yesterday, and he spent a he spent some days with uh, with his family and brother-in-law in particular, having these kind of conversations, and. Uh, I won't mention denominations, it really doesn't matter, but, the, but his brother, brother-in-law was just talking about how, you know, uh, you know, of the inerrancy of this, I'm not going to disagree with that, but uh, he asked him, he said, so how did the early Christians test truth? They didn't have anything to run to. They, did, they didn't have this to look at. How did, they, how did they test the truth? And he asked him, he said, who, who wrote this? And his brother-in-law said, well, it was written by the Spirit of God, by, by men's hands, but it was inspired by the Spirit of God. Like, okay. And they had the Spirit, but they didn't have, they didn't have this book. Why did they test it against? He said, I guess they had to test it against the Spirit. Yeah, that's, a, that's pretty interesting. You know, there, there should be no disconnect. 
there should be no breaking down because we, we, we read, read in John chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. So I'm not, I, there, there, should be, there should be no disconnect. But when we recognize now by those kind of powerful words, I, I not only can show you the, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life today, I have a hard time reading anything in the Bible that doesn't say it. I mean, if, if it says that, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, well, how in the world am I supposed to discover his will? I, I, I know there's a, a deep measure of it here. Love your neighbor, you know, obey. There's a, a huge measure of the will of God that we can read here. But there's a point where I need it to become personal to me. I need the uniqueness of a relationship that I have because he loves me uniquely and I'm called according to his purpose. I need to know what that purpose is uniquely for me. So we are designed to know the will of the Father and we do that by hearing because he says we are hearers of the word and not, you know, we, we, can actually, we can actually hear it. It also says in that, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, once again, the, the sprinkler illustration is a great illustration because, again, we don't, if it's not going to sprinkle, we don't call it a sprinkler. We call it a cap on the end of the hose. If I am saved... If I have received the salvation of God as a gift to me, if I've received that grace that made that possible and given the faith that would allow that to be exercised, if I have been given that so that I now carry this name of a believer, is there ever a situation, maybe except for somebody who's on their deathbed, maybe, maybe I can find those exceptions, but is there ever a time and, and, and these are questions that I can't answer. I'll raise them, but I don't know if I can answer them. Is there ever a time when a believer who has received resurrection life can so hold that resurrection life that it's not going to be displayed to somebody else? That's a huge question because I've got a flow, a, a water flow coming to me and, and with massive force and the power of the Holy Spirit, am I, will I ever be completely successful in putting my hand over the end of the hose and saying, no, I'm not going to, I will not let in any way there, to be any evidence of the fact that I'm saved and I have resurrection life in me. Because what's being described here is that if you're not a doer, if, then what's the very nature of a believer? What's the very nature of grace? What's the very nature of faith? Again, I know this raises huge questions because we have all, we've, we roll so many people into the category of saved because it seems like the more gracious and kind thing to do. But the reality is that, that when you examine lives that have been professed to say, I'm a believer, I can't say whether they're saved or not. That's not my prerogative. But when, we, when I read scriptures like this, 
it begins to help me understand why the vision that God gave me almost 12 years ago of, of churches full of unsaved people. And about the same time, same time I got that one, Kendall got one of, of a very same fashion, but his was a huge pile that he couldn't even distinguish until he got close enough and he saw arms and feet and bodies that were piled of those who had once thought they were saved and weren't. You see, to me, that vision has always raised this question. When I read, when I read verses like this, it's like we have, to, we have to tell people the truth. We have to speak the truth. I can't whitewash this stuff anymore. I can't try to appease somebody and help them believe that they're saved when they're truly not. I've got a responsibility beyond that. I've got a conversation that I need to speak beyond the, 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 the trying to just assure somebody that, that they're saved. I've got to tell the truth because the truth will tell them yes and, not, yes and no. But when we read these kind of things, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, that the very nature of somebody that's a believer is to do the Father's will. I've asked this question several times in the last few days. If, uh, Teresa, I'll pick on you. Not a hard, not a hard test. If, if you see me coming up your sidewalk, look out the window, see me coming up the sidewalk, and I've got this gift in my hand. It's wrapped gift. And I ring the doorbell and you open the door and I say, Teresa, this is for you. Now you may wonder what is all behind this, but would you hesitate to take the gift? No. If somebody that you just absolutely did not know you see this stranger coming up this sidewalk and that onboard computer is running as fast as it can saying, who is this, who is this, who is this? And they're carrying this gift box wrapped. And they, and they ring the doorbell and they open the door and they hold this out. Is it the same? Are you, are you going to be able to take that gift the same as you did as if it were from me? Why? What's the difference? The surety. Do what? The surety. Yeah, but sure based on what? Knowing the person giving the gift. So when we were given so many gifts of God, I mean, we're given extreme gifts. And we find ourselves as believers hesitant to receive them. Why? We don't know him well enough. Him well enough. Yes, ma'am. The thought would be if the stranger approached Teresa and said, Teresa, this is for you, like used her name. So he would have the authority of, of someone giving this gift to her, even though she didn't know the person that was giving it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he calls us by name. He knows us, and he knows 
from the teaching on Sunday morning. He's not parenting just from behind us, cleaning up our messes. He's parenting in front of us, establishing prophetically by visions, by dreams, by identities. He's parenting from in front of us so that I know not only would the gift be a great gift, it would be according to that which I don't even know yet. We're hesitant to take the gifts because we still don't know him. It's amazing that we still don't know the heart of our Father because we're so hesitant to take a gift unless it looks exactly like the gift I wanted. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, he didn't know God. He didn't know the heart of God. So he's very hesitant to receive the healing that God wanted for him and had available for him from the beginning, but he didn't know the heart of the Father that was trying to give him the gift. He had to learn who God was. We are, we are, we, it's so strange. And how many conversations I have each week of people who have been Christians a long time and are still upset with them. And I, and I told y'all Sunday morning that if we believe that God parents from behind us, we will conclude that he's not very good at his job. I, you know, I started by, by saying if we parent from behind our children, our children will largely determine what kind of parents we are. If we think God parents from behind us only, then God, I needed this mess cleaned up and you were late. I had already had in mind what I needed you to do and you didn't do it. You, you, you didn't respond at all. I didn't hear from you, or you're hard to contact. So very often the conclusions about a father who parents us from behind is you're not very good at what you do. And many believers have walked away because of that instead of recognizing that, yes, he's very willing to parent from behind me and clean up my messes and form them into his glory, but he loves parenting us from in front. So that by, because if he parents in front, here, we, we, we determine what kind of God he is. If we let him parent in, from in front, he will determine what kind of children we are. How many believers won't receive the gift of prophecy? Why wouldn't they receive it? Because they don't know the heart of the Father who's trying to give it. How many have, 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 you know, I shared this with somebody the other day and it's like, you know, I've, I've preached this, that God will, it's very determined for all of us to get us to a point where in this box that I draw, there's only two names, mine and his. Because if he can ever get me to that point to where my faith is in him, my trust is in him, I know him and he, and he can help me know me the sufficiency that he's placed in me and I can know, that I can know him with, with an intimacy of knowing him, then, then he can start doing things at that point, otherwise very hesitant to do. For example, with this, with this person I was talking to, if, if you don't know him well that, and you go outside of this box because you're tired of, of this being alone, and you go out and you meet somebody, then that person that you meet 
will become a trophy that you earned or that somehow you went out and gained. And you're going to have to maintain that trophy. If you ever discover that he's enough and get settled in that, really where it's part of your life, then he can give you someone as a gift so that you wake up each day saying, God, thank you for the gift of the person that I'm married to. It's a very different life because I love being a part of Jan's life. Probably shouldn't say the word maintaining, but I love being a part of her life from the, from the fact that I know she's a gift to me because I, everything I do, I do from gratitude to the Father who gave her to me versus to think that somehow I had gone out here and, and actually earned or, or, or sought her out and deserved her And now for that to work every day, I've got to maintain that. There's a whole lot of difference. But unfortunately, we don't see our time being alone as the gift of God. We don't want to be alone and I don't want. So we take steps, we we do things to try to alleviate the being alone. And God's saying, being alone is my gift to you. When did David figure out how to kill Goliath? He was alone. We know it because when he shows up on the battlefield, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would dare stand against the army of God? So, well, there's nobody to go out. I'll go out. And what did, he, what did he say? Why was he not nervous about going out? What did he say? Because when I was alone, I killed a lion and a bear. What did he discover out there alone? the power of God. He understood something from being alone that he could actually now bring him to the battlefield and say, who is this guy? This terrifying everyone. He learned that alone. And we see alone as one of the most terrible things that we could possibly experience. And God's saying, no, if you figured this out alone, I can do remarkable things. Give you remarkable gifts that you won't confuse as prizes that you somehow earn and need to be patted on the back. You'll know it was me. You'll know I gave it to you and you won't mistake it for anything else. I need to move on. Man, I could get stuck. I am stuck. Verse 22, back in Matthew, still in Matthew 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in the name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. See, he's saying it's not just the doing. Because these people are doing. But it but said, did we not do all these things? In verse 23, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Because what has to be familiar in all those things? When they, when they, when they say prophecy, cast out devils, many wonderful works. He's going to examine all those things. And what's he going to be... Let me rephrase that. Who's he going to be searching for in all those things? His son. His son. He's going to be searching each one of those wonderful works and he's going to peer into it and see if at the core of it was the son of God. He's going to look into all those prophecies and say, did they originate in the person or did they originate in the heart of my son? 
He's going to be able to distinguish the difference of the origin of the doing. That's why we know what James knows what he's talking about, not to just be out there doing, because right here he's saying it's not just in the doing, because Jesus is going to say, depart, I never knew you. You were doing those things on your own. If I'd been involved in them, I would know you intimately. He goes on. Therefore, whosoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house upon a rock and rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these things of mine and does them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew, beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Hmm. We've got, we've got two groups of men here being described briefly. One is Jesus. One are the scribes. One had authority. One did not. Where did Jesus get his authority? He got it from the Father by what means? Through the Holy Spirit. He received it as baptism. He had authority. And the scribes who knew a great deal about, about the Old Testament, knew the law, had practiced it, had taught it, had recorded it, written it. These scribes who knew intimately the oracles of God lacked authority because they had no spirit. I believe James probably knew this teaching. Likely was sitting there and would have known of this teaching. We're now back in James chapter one. The end of verse 22 says, deceiving your own selves. He's saying by the logical fallacy, the, the Greek implies this, that, that the mere hearing is all that's needed. Because, because to the Greeks, what were they fascinated with? They were fascinated with knowledge. They loved the learning. So when we begin to hear this, this teaching, this, uh, this letter of James, he's, he's just reassuring them that, that if you think knowing is going to get you somewhere, you're, it's a fallacy. It is you're deceiving your own selves. I don't have my flip chart in here, and I'm not sure I could describe this very well, but I'm going to just make a stab at it. Once again, I taught on this just a few weeks ago, so I'll be brief. If I know that the battlefield is the mind, okay, and I need to expand that to really say the battlefield is the soul because emotions are very involved in it as well. And the dangers of our thought that we, can, that we can win a battle in the battlefield of our mind with our mind. We don't get the weapons. We don't pick the weapons up off the battlefield to fight because it says our weapons are not carnal. They're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. So when I draw this picture of the battlefield of the mind, I say the way that we battle well is the first thing is we recognize that I am building spiritual reality through encounter with God. 
It takes encounter, experience. And the first thing I list under that is my salvation because that wasn't something I intellectually learned. That was an encounter I had. And it wasn't something I did. It was something God did. We get these pieces. My salvation is an experience, an encounter with God. And God did something I could not do. My baptism, my baptism in the Holy Spirit, those who who received deliverance, all of those things are encounters with God. God did something that we could not do. So that when Satan whispers to me down here in my mind, and he says, you're not really saved. Again, I don't talk to him. I don't try to get that thought out of my head. I don't try to exercise mind control. So I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'm not going to let my mind think about that. I don't, I don't go there. I don't have that conversation. I don't take my eyes off Satan because I've got him in the bullseye now. He's squarely in front of me and I, I don't want to, I don't want to lose him. This bat behind me is so familiar that I know exactly where in the bat rack it is. So I reach back here and I get this bat and inscribed upon it, you know, age eight, sitting on the side of the bed with your mom. You ask, he said yes. So I don't take my eyes off the enemy. I get that bat and I declare to him in one blow that I am not lost, I am saved. And I hit him with it. I declare to him that which is instead of negotiating with the maybe. And when he, and he says, you're not, you don't have any power, you're weak. Don't talk to him. I, get, I reach back here and I get this bat. I was sitting, there was a pew here at that time. I was sitting right here when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can draw a circle right here where I was when the moment I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I reach and get that bat. Don't take my eyes off of him because I don't want to lose him. And I declare unto him my strength. But while I'm, all the time I'm gaining these spiritual experiences by encounter, these things that are spiritually real to me. Why? Because I was there. Paul could declare to King Agrippa at midday, King Agrippa, I I saw a light on the road to Damascus. How could Paul declare that? He was there. Were you present in your own salvation? Did you encounter God? Were were you present the moment that you were baptized? Was it an encounter with God or an action that you took? But all the time, I'm gaining this History, this personal history of encounter, at the same time over here, he's releasing to me spiritual truth by revelation. So he's teaching me about righteousness. So that when Satan down here in the battlefield of my mind says, you're just a sinner. Don't look up reach back over my shoulder because I know where that bat of righteousness is. That he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might know the righteousness of God in him. See, that bat's got that written on that. Now he says, this is who I am. I reach and get that bat and I don't want to lose him because I'm about to declare to him, not negotiate, I'm going to declare to him the righteousness of God that's written on my heart. I don't want to talk to him. This battle's going to be real short going to take about one stone in a sling because somewhere back here I already know what I know when he says you're just a servant so I'm going to reach back here and say no I think it's wrong because I think the moment I was baptized when I was saved I think I became a child of God 
not a servant of God. Yes, I'm going to serve him because I'm going to serve him as a son, but don't call me a servant. No longer a servant, but a child of God. I'm going to reach and get that bat, and I'm going to let him have it. But you know what happens to us when we have encounter with no truth? Or what happens to us when we know truth, we have a lot of knowledge, but no experience? We don't even want to go to the battlefield. We don't even want to approach it. And, and, and one of the promises that God made me with great assurance when I became pastor here is I, I don't want to build a place that is just all experience. But I also have to break down this, this tremendous value that we place on knowledge. Because somewhere in the middle is this miraculous place where the experiences of God, the reality of those experiences, encounters with God, meet the truth of God that's been revealed. We meet there. And then we become those people. Instead of, instead of him saying to us, they had a form of godliness but knew not the power. He can say they had a form of godliness and they had the power. I long for that. So all the time we're talking about experiences and, and, and are you encountering God? But I'll stop every now and then you hear me say this. We got to pour cement today. We got to pour foundation today. We got to get, got to get this stuff solidly under our feet because I don't want us to, to just have the experience without the foundation under us because it takes both. And James was trying to address those who had great knowledge, but for them to think that that knowledge, you're just deceiving yourselves and we elevate in the Christian church, we elevate knowledge. I hear people talk often, but you know, I don't want to leave my Sunday school class because this guy, this woman's such a fantastic teacher. She knows history. You know, she knows the stories behind all this and, and brings so much history into this. It's like, all right, it's great. Bring any spirit. Bring an encounter. Or are you just getting smarter? We were in Austin one time at uh, the Ladybird Johnson Flower or something. I can't remember what, what the right name of it is, but it's a beautiful place where all these wildflowers are out planted in very natural places, and it's just a great walk. But we went into the bookstore, and there was a woman in there that was from Houston. She said, I just come up here from time when I'm here. I work in the bookstore, in the gift shop, I'm sorry. And, uh, and she's... I told her, she asked something, I told her I was a pastor, and she said, oh, I, I love my church in Houston. She said, my Sunday school class has over a thousand people in it. She said, everybody wants in this class. It must, must be a remarkable teacher. Yeah, he's so smart. He brings in so much history. He brings in all this extra stuff. It's like, I wanted this to say, just, okay, just, just a second. Do you ever have an encounter with God? Are you just getting smarter? Because we elevate knowledge. How many churches will not allow somebody to be pastor unless there's a doctor in front of their name? What are we doing there? We're believing something's been established by that title that may not have ever been established. I told y'all before, I wish instead of having a graduation, 
from seminary that have, that, that have baptisms in the Holy Spirit so that they would really come out ready. Full of the Spirit of God instead of just knowledge. And I know many probably who do come out full of the Holy Spirit, but I find them a little bit hard to find. 23, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. The word for is referring back to verse 22, but now it's illustrated where he said, be ye doers of the word. Now he's giving an illustration. James knew well that a true disciple was trained by a rabbi that he may do all the things that he was taught. Kendall's teaching on how disciples were made tells us very well that it, the process of how an, a, an, a disciple became a follower of a rabbi and all that, that process, but, the, but once chosen, this disciple would almost serve in the shadow of the rabbi because he learned everything he could learn, not only just the facts of it, but he watched the rabbi live that which he knew so that he could not only learn the factual part, but also learn the doing of it as well. So that someday when he became a rabbi, he didn't have to mimic that, that, that priest or the rabbi, but he could actually then do what he did according to that which was him personally. He could bring his own person, his own person to it. Like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, that, that by illustration is a hearer who, has, who, who sees his moral condition in the word of God. The natural face is the countenance of his birth. That's what that really, that's what the phrase means. Or the face that he was born with. As a man beholds his natural face in a mirror, so the hearer may perceive his own moral portrait in God's word. We'll say that again, because I want us to get this. As a man may behold his natural face, what he looks like in a mirror, so a hearer may perceive his own moral portrait, see him actually see himself accurately in, the, in God's word. That's one of those things that this word of God should do. Truth should reveal. Truth should expose. Truth should bring freedom. When I look in that mirror and I look in it with accuracy, God's word, both the logos and the rhema word, it should tell me who I am. It should show me an area where there's an error. It should show me an error where I'm lacking. But it should also build me up. It should also let, let me know that I have a father who loves me and even be able to say he's pleased with me. Not everything is wrong. Not everything is a mistake. Not everything is an error. But God actually wants to, me to know those areas where, where I can actually see where something is right and good. Because this honest picture will tell whether or not a person truly understands that what he or she proclaims to know. Your portrait, not painted on canvas, as Paul says, a letter not written with ink. Somebody reads that letter, somebody sees this portrait of a life. It's going to run more like a movie than a portrait. We are going to put on display those things that we really know and really believe. James is saying you're, it's very natural to be a doer 
because what you do is fixing to put on display what you should be perceiving in the mirror. Either the truth of God as a believer and the release of that to others or even, even the possible truth that I've never had an encounter with God and I've never been saved. The knowledge and obedience will produce the doing. Therefore, a look into the mirror of our own life should clearly magnify God's glory and our natural limitations. I stand in front of that mirror long enough and I look at me, I'm gonna come to the right conclusion. God, without you, I can't do anything. But with you, yeah, anything. I'm obedient. That look in that mirror should bring us to the place where I see my natural limitations and see that those natural limitations have been overwhelmed by his provision. I'm going to stop right there. I thought I could get to the end of this chapter, but somebody just got off on a tangent. I, I don't know who it was, but because there, there weren't many of us who spoke. So it was me, Shorty. Could have been Lacey. Did you say something, Donna? Could have been Donna. Andrea? Could have been. Could, could have been. Yeah. So y'all can make up your mind who got us off. Father, thank you for this time we've been together, for this opportunity to just again look at your heart through these words of James. It's just the beautiful way to look. I thank you, I thank you, Father, that James, just somewhere it seemed like enemy was a poet. And it got expressed in this very strange poetry, these vivid descriptions, examples that James painted, paints for us by the clarity that the Holy Spirit brings. So thank you, Father, that we get to spend time here in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.